They're for the purpose of us living a life that is right according to your sight. And so, Father, I just pray for tonight that you bless our time in your word. One more time, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you turn and greet your neighbor. Greetings, neighbors. Well, God has blessed us with a new heater slash air conditioner, and it seems to be working fairly well tonight. Hopefully you're comfortable. Uh, Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 13. We'll be picking up where we left off last week. 2 Chronicles chapter 13. The theme of what we are going to be looking at tonight I have chosen to call Isaac Newton Theology. Now, you may be saying, I was unaware that Isaac Newton was a theologian. Well, in this particular case, we're going to be going off his theory that the apple does not fall far from the tree. Point being, as mom and dad did, so do we. And we see this in Genesis chapter 5, even at the beginning of the Bible, it'll bring up these different generations and the sons that they had, and it always ended the same way. And everybody that is listed in Genesis 5 and he died, and what is being hammered is the effects of sin. And it's showing that the generations after Adam, they were all sinners. Well, we're looking at the generations after King David, and we see the sinners that they are. We'll see some who've done better than others, but the bottom line, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But it's never about the sin you commit, it's about the faith that you exhibit, and it's faith in Jesus Christ. Back then, as all they knew was the promise of Messiah, but that's what they were evaluated upon, is the faith that they had in God's promises that he would overcome the sinful nature of mankind. So as far as family, there are a lot of traditions that have been blended together, especially my wife and mine. We've taken some of her family traditions before we were married, and mine, and we've joined them together. Uh, yesterday, we celebrated three birthdays. It was neat to have my family over and together, not everybody, but most of them, and just to get together and celebrate the lives of my wife, my son-in-law, and my daughter. And it's just a blessing to gather together as a, as a family. But this concept also works to the negative in that as mom and dad were sinners, so am I. So are you, so are we all. But what we must remember is reality, this is a reality and this is not an excuse. Yes, I inherited the sinful nature of my father, but I cannot blame it on my father. In the presence of God, we are all culpable for our own actions, for the things we do and the things we say. Even for the born-again believer, the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And so what do I teach my children and my children's children is to have faith in Jesus Christ, knowing and understanding the sinful nature that they have, because Christ is the only one that is going to be able to overcome. I can't preach to them to live a perfect life because they're incapable of living a perfect life. I'm incapable of living a perfect life. But because of our imperfections, 
Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And so we are not to cling to the attributes of our earthly fathers, but to who our heavenly father is. And there must be a change in each and every life. I must examine my life, as I've said so many times, and see that date on the timeline of my life that there was a change. There was a time before Christ and after Christ, and there was that time that I became born again. But as much as depends upon me and those whom God has given me stewardship over with my children... They should be able to make it an evaluation there as well. Is there a change that has come upon their lives, the days that they've received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and was there truly a change that occurred? And again, I'm able to go a generation even further as I have seven grandchildren now, and I'm praying for them, and I'm ministering to them, and I'm looking after them because I want to see them in the kingdom of heaven. I want them to wear crowns with me, and I want to walk on streets of gold with them at some point in eternity. And I so look forward to that day, but that day is going to be based upon the decisions that are made here in this life. In John chapter 1, verses 12 through 3, it says, But as many as received him. Well, what is John talking about in that first chapter? He's talking about belief. We receive Jesus Christ by faith through belief. For as many as received him to them, to those who received him, he gave the right. Now this is a God-given right that if you receive Christ as your Savior, then you become a child of God. He gave them the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, they're not getting in because of me, nor of the will of the flesh, they're not getting in by their works, nor of the will of man, nobody else can get them in, but of God. And the whole, or well, one of the keys you need to see here, he gave the right to become children of God. That means until they received him, they were not a child of God. They were a creation of God, but at some point they had to make the decision for God based upon God's word, and it's at that moment of salvation or when they were born again that they become a child of God. And so you may have heard some secular person behind some kind of podium state that we're all children of God. We are not all children of God. Only those who are born again have the right to call themselves to be children of God. That person up there, if they're perpetuating any other reason that we should be children of God, they do not have the right in the sight of God to call themselves children of God. And so they can become a child of God. They must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So what we'll be looking at in the remainder, we're not going through the whole remainder of the, uh, the book today, but in the remainder of Second Chronicles is a series, we'll be seeing a series of bad apples intermingled with some good apples. We'll see some who did well and some who did not do so well. We'll be looking at, in Second Chronicles, exclusively at the kings of the southern kingdom. A lot of times it'll time stamp it by mentioning who the, ki the king was of the northern kingdom, but we'll be examining the lives of the kings of the southern kingdom, and again, only references made to the kings of the northern kingdom. So right there, we must understand that Solomon, Solomon has died. His son, Rehoboam has taken over, but there was a rip, a tear, a God-ordained tear in the kingdom of Israel. So you have the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes, it's now divided. There's the northern kingdom, the 10 tribes, and there's the southern kingdom, two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. 
And we're going to be looking at, Chronicles looks at the southern kingdom. Why? Because it's pointing towards the coming of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is of the tribe of Judah. As far as the other ones, the other ones never had a good king. The northern kingdom never had a good king. And we'll be looking at the southern kingdom. And we'll see some good kings, as I said before, and some others. And we'll see this in the introduction to the sons of the former king. As that former king died and his son took over, we'll see a one of two testimonies. Usually mentioned right at the beginning so you understand the direction that is going you'll see one that did what was good and right in the eyes of God, but then we'll also see others. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. Usually evil, it wasn't so much based upon the flesh, because you'll see that those who did well and those who did not do well, they were sinners. And we'll see Esau in his life, and we'll see where he failed. But usually it's the ones who did evil, they sought after idolatry. They sought after gods of the world, those who could do absolutely nothing for them. And the thing that set apart the ones who did what was right in the sight of the Lord, these were the ones who sought after the Lord. These were the ones who repented of their sins. And these are the ones who God blessed and gave the right to become children of God. So tonight we'll be looking at chapters 13 through 16, and we'll be looking at kings Abijah and Esau. So first we have Abijah. Abijah, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 13. In the 18th year of King Jeroboam, well, remember King Jeroboam? He's the king of the northern kingdom at the split. So again, that's just to give us a time stamp, but not really going to refer much to him. In the 18th year of King Jeroboam, Abijah became king over Judah, and he reigned three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Micaiah, the daughter of Uriel of Gebeah, and there was war between Abijah and Jeroboam. Abijah set the battle in order with an army of valiant warriors, 400,000 choice men. Jeroboam also drew up in battle formation against him with 800,000 choice men, mighty men of valor. Well, if you didn't go watch, stay home and watch the Super Bowl last week and you were here at church last night, you would be thinking, well, how come last week there was Rehoboam and he was going to come up against Jeroboam and God told him not to. But now all of a sudden, God is allowing that southern king and we'll even see that God fosters a victory against Jeroboam. Why is God doing that? Well, I think God has given time for Jeroboam to time, not time stamp, but to validate his idolatrous heart. And now, as God has given him opportunity to be right with him, and Jeroboam has refused that, now God is allowing this army for the south to come up against him. But unfortunately, with Abijah, we see his testimony in the parallel stories in 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 3. It says, And he walked, or lived his life, and all the sins of his father, which he had done before him, his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. And so Israel and Judah, there's been skirmishes, and they're at war with one another. Abijah, he makes the decision to invade the northern kingdom of Israel. The thing about it is, you wouldn't think it would be a wise decision, and I'd have to believe that God stirred his heart, but he's outnumbered two to one. Those aren't good odds to go to battle. In verses 4 through 12, we see Abijah, he's preparing his men, 
And again, we just saw his testimony that he was not right before the Lord, but he stands up and gives a sermon. But his sermon is filled with half-truths, misconceptions, and a little bit of reality. It's for the purpose of motivating the people, but there's, again, there's some biblical reality, but most of it is fantasy. And what he's doing is he's stating some facts. He's stating how the northern kingdom is filled with idolatry, and, and that was true. He's saying how we worship the Lord, but really what he's talking about, he's talking about how we go through the routine. But you don't really see a heart of a man who is honestly, we'll see this in Esau, but praying to God. And again, we, this can be manifest in our life as we go through, you know, going through a hard time, difficult day, and we'll say, well, Lord, how come the heathen that lives across the street is doing well and, and I'm have to go through this? I, I go to church, I, I read the Bible, and I, I, I put money in the offering and all of these things. How come they, but, but that's not what God is about. God is about, and we saw this this morning in our teaching, he uses these trials to knock on our hearts so that we would look to him because he wants that personal time. See, we got together, as I said, as a family for a birthday, and instead of my daughter and her family coming up from Yucca Valley and my other daughter driving down from northern Ontario, which took like five minutes, they could have just sent a a birthday card and just blew it all off. And we could have sent one to... But that's so impersonal. Not that we don't do stuff like that, but still, it was so much better to get together. And God's always wanting to get together with his people. He's always wanting to maintain that personal relationship. He wants to maintain that relationship with you. It's why we've been told to pray without ceasing, so we know that we constantly have the ear of our Father. It's why we are to be in God's Word daily, so that we have that ear to hear from Him. And as we do these things, there's that relationship that has been developed. Well, Abijah hasn't really done a whole lot about developing a relationship, because he's not speaking to God, he's speaking to the people, and he's speaking to the people about the people. Now, he understood that idolatry had taken over the northern kingdom, but he did not understand that God had enabled Jeroboam because of even his own father's sin. So just as Jeroboam is in sin, so has your father's. And again, the apple hasn't fallen very far from the tree. So he seems to be part of a group of people that are really religious, but he's relationally disconnected from God. But the good thing is, God does great things, and he is going to exhibit just even a little bit of faith when things get hard, when the heat is turned up, that is going to make all the difference. Matter of fact, Jesus said in Luke chapter 17, verse 6, and, and this is key in our lives, the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed. Now, the mustard seed is the smallest of seeds that when it germinates and it grows, that bears fruit. And so he's talking about something just something so small, but is able to eventually bear fruit. If you have faith of a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. You would be able to do great things, even with just a, a little bit of faith. And so that's, that's all God ever desires. And, and we so think of these men who God has used in mighty ways, just even the guys of the, of the Bible, you know, what giants these people were. Now, they were all a bunch of mustard seeds. As a matter of fact, they, it, it, they, they were victorious in the Lord, not because of themselves, but in spite of themselves. I, I mean, you look at Abraham. He, he goes into the promised land, and things are a little bit tough. There's a famine in the land, and he goes running off to Egypt. He even tells Pharaoh, nah, she's not my wife, she's just my sister, and the idea is if you want her, you can take her. And, and you're looking at this man, where's the faith? Well, he did go, but it was just a little bit of faith. It wasn't perfect faith. 
And then there's Moses when God commanded him to go to speak to Pharaoh. Hey, I can't speak to Pharaoh. I've, I've got trouble speaking. And God even got to the point that he was, became disgusted with Moses. But Moses eventually went and Moses eventually spoke. Apart from Jesus Christ, you'll see the failures of them all. You'll see the imperfections of all because the Bible is filled with imperfect people who were called and used by God in miraculous ways that were beyond their abilities. It's why we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Why? So that he is glorified when he brings about the good work. Verses 13 through 20, back in chapter 13. So after this sermon that Abijah gives, it says, but Jeroboam, Jeroboam, okay, well, this guy's going to talk. We're going to ambush him. It says, but Jeroboam caused an ambush to go around behind them. So they were in front of Judah, and the ambush was behind them. So when Judah looked around, to their surprise, the battle line was both front and rear, and they cried out to the Lord, and the priest sounded the trumpet. I would imagine that this king went into that battle just thinking that they were special, or at least he was special, and God was just going to cause the enemy to lay down. And so he gives this arrogant sermon, if you will, and now all of a sudden he realizes we're in a bad spot. We're surrounded by the enemy. It says in verse 15, Then the men of Judah gave a shout, and as the men of Judah shouted, it happened that God struck Jeroboam and all of Israel before Abijah and Judah. And the children of Israel fled before Judah, and God delivered them into their hand. And Abijah and his people struck them with a great slaughter, so 500,000 choice men of Israel fell slain. I can't imagine what a battlefield must look like with 500,000 dead people. And remember, they had an army of 800,000. had to seem insurmountable, but over half of them are dead now. Verse 18, thus the children of Israel were subdued at that time, and the children of Judah prevailed because they relied on the Lord God of their fathers. And we have to remember that when we're facing a situation that is overwhelming, and usually the reason why it's overwhelming, because you're evaluating it and you're realizing what you can't do. I've got this... This amount of money that I owe, this, this, this hole that I dug for myself, and how am I ever going to get out? Maybe it's a relational issue, whatever it might be, and it seems so insurmountable. Well, with man, it may be impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And so what did these people do? Well, they finally called out to the Lord. It says again in verse 14, When Judah looked around, to their surprise, the battle line was at both front and rear, and they cried out to the Lord. So finally, God used this situation to get them where they needed to be, and now, instead of just speaking these empty words, they are now crying out to the Lord, or they're praying to their God. Verse 18, Thus the children of Israel were subdued at that time, and the children of Judah prevailed because they relied on the Lord God of their fathers. And Abijah pursued Jeroboam and took cities from him, Bethel with its villages, Jeshana with its villages, and Ephraim with its villages. So Jeroboam did not recover strength again in the days of Abijah, and the Lord struck him and he died. That would be Jeroboam that he struck. God caused his death to come about. You can read about it in 1 Kings. Second Chronicles does not address it because, again, he is a northern king. So, 
we see that the apple, Abijah, did not fall far from the tree, and eventually he even fell far from the Lord. Verse 21, even though he had just seen God move and deliver him, he still didn't have a heart from God. Now we just see this little bit of a picture of his heart, but we see a picture of his heart nonetheless, verses 21 through 22. But Abijah, Abijah grew mighty, so he, he, he became powerful. And probably the idea is he's more powerful than the northern kingdom now. They're afraid of him. He's more powerful, at least maybe the the, uh, the, um, testimony of what had happened in that battle. So the surrounding nations are staying away from him. He's got a time of rest. He doesn't have to worry about being attacked. And he says he grew mighty. But what did he do? He married 14 wives and begot 22 sons and 16 daughters. Now the rest of the acts of Abijah, his ways and his sayings are written in the annuals of the prophet Edu. We don't have that. That's a book that was written and referred to here. But nonetheless, we see this man who, well, just as his fathers did, so did he. We looked at that with Solomon, and we saw it with Rehoboam, and now we see it, how this is this sinful nature is passed on to their son, Abijah. We are told, they were told, not to multiply wealth. We don't really see where he did that. He wasn't to multiply horses. We don't see where he did that, but he did multiply wives. And it's that which God had commanded the king not to do. And in God's sight, a half obedience is no obedience whatsoever. Sin is still sin. Also, if you study both First Kings and Second Chronicles account of this man, you would see something kind of strange. This guy had two names, two ways in which he was referred to. In First Kings, it's Abijam, A-B-I-J-A-M. This means my father is Yam, Y-A-M. Yam was a Canaanite sea god. In Second Chronicles, as we see, it's Abijah, which means Yahweh is my father. So understand that Rehoboam was his natural father, but he who was intended to be seen as the son of God is now seen as the son of a God. He was two-faced. He tried to have it both ways. He, he, He tried to walk in the ways of the world and the ways of the spirit. There's very little that is written about him, this one mighty act of God, but again, he is referred to somebody who did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Far be it from my life that that would be my testimony. Yeah, Pastor Mike, I remember him. Didn't he do evil in the sight of the Lord? Or or, or have that testimony said about my children or again, the grandchildren or any of my descendants or whatever it might be. Would it be to God that, you know what? It wasn't much about him, but he, he gave glory to God. It wasn't much about her, but at least she worshiped the Lord and gave God glory for what had happened. That's the testimony that is perfect in the sight of God. Next, we have King Asa, chapter 14, verses 1 through 2. But Ab- so Abijah rested with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. Then Asa, his son, reigned in his place. In his days, the land was quiet for ten years. And Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord God. Now again, as we look at this man's life, we're going to see that he wasn't perfect. Matter of fact, the end of his life, he didn't really finish that well. But what is God looking for? He's just looking for a mustard seed of faith. And so what this man did was, seems like the dividing line is always idolatry, he expelled idols from the land. And these ways that people were even worshiping the living God in a way that was not commanded by God for them to worship him. And so it seems like we have this man, Esau, he's not referred to this way, but just like his dad, David, he seems to be a man after God's own heart. 
And so after 20 years of apostasy in Judah, because we're going to see that, well, those false gods of the north, they started creeping into the south. And I would imagine that that was probably the evil that Abijah had done in the sight of the Lord. I don't know if he brought it in or he just allowed it to be in there, but nonetheless, it was affecting the people or infecting the people. Esau will lead the first of five great reformations in Judah that we see in the scriptures. But in the end of his reign, again, there is going to be a failure of his faith, but it's always about what God is able to do. One of the great things about God that we see present in the New Testament, a New Testament concept, but also seen as a biblical reality, is the ability for repentance. God, once again, does not expect perfection from any of us, but you constantly see this through the scriptures. You even see it through some pretty godless people at a time in their lives. They'll repent, they'll acknowledge their sin, and they'll come before God, and God will relent of what he was going to do to them, although some of the evil ones went back to what they were doing, Ahab is one of them that comes to mind. But still, there's always that opportunity for repentance. This is the realization of one who takes a wrong course in life and changes his ways. Again, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins. And again, there's that word, if we confess our sins. It says, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so if you confess your sins, and so what do I need? Well, first of all, I need that complete washing of the word of God because my sins have affected me. That I, 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 My sins are as scarlet, and God washes me as snow. But even though he's washed me as white as snow, at times as I'm living a life, as I'm walking, I get dirty from time to time. I stumble and I fall, and I need that periodic washing as well. And so just as at that moment of salvation, what did I do? I repented of my sins. In actuality, I didn't go through and try to list them all because the list would have been too long. What I did was I repented of my sinful nature. I'm a sinner. And God forgave me and he forgave all of my sins. I'm going to heaven. I'm going to be present in the sight of God for all of eternity and the blessing that that is. But again, in my Christian life from time to time, I do sin. And and I I don't want through committing sins that are left unrepented of, for God to hide his face from me, turn his blessings from me, for God to not use me. I want my prayers to be heard. I want to live a life that is honorable to him. So when I do fall, understanding that my sinful nature has been taken care of in the sight of God, he looks at me just as if I've never sinned, but I still need that periodic cleansing. And that comes from repentance. That Lord, you know what? In my relationship with that particular person today, I kind of lost my temper, Lord. I didn't rightly represent you. Or, you know, Lord, when I was building that cabinet and I hit my thumb with a hammer, the word that came out of my mouth, I didn't know that was even still in there, Lord. And again, these things don't cause anybody to lose their salvation, but there's just got to be that acknowledgement of sin and then the dealing with sin and then moving on. We need the periodic cleansing. And so how do we do that? It's simply through repentance. And so Esau, not a perfect man, but one who did bear the fruits of repentance. So what were, excuse me, Esau's fruits of repentance? Well, first of all, verses 2 through 8, he cleansed that which was contrary to God. Now again, this man has responsibility. God has given him this southern kingdom. Each and every one of us have an area of responsibility or a sphere of influence, whatever that might be. I want to keep that. You need to keep that honorable before the Lord, even if it's just your own life. 
You have responsibility over that. And so just as Esau kept his place pure, we need to keep ours. Verse 2. Esau did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God, for he removed the altars of the foreign gods. So these things were in existence in the southern kingdom. And the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the wooden images. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to observe the law and the commandment. He also removed the high places and the incense altars from all the cities of Judah, and the kingdom was quiet under him. And he built fortified cities in Judah, for the land had rest, and he had no war in those years, because the Lord had given him rest. Therefore he said to Judah, let us build these cities and make walls around them. So he's being a good steward here. And towers and gates and bars, why the land is yet before us, because we have sought the Lord our God. We have sought him, and he has given us rest on every side, so they built and prospered. And Esau had an army of 300,000 from Judah who carried shields and spears. And from Benjamin, remember there was the two southern kingdoms, Judah and Benjamin. And from Benjamin, 180,000 men, so almost 600,000 men who carried shields and drew bows and all these were mighty men of valor we're closer to 500,000 men but nonetheless he had this army he's building these cities so he said he has peace and well sometimes when David had peace and we see this with others peace wasn't such a good thing maybe even with Abijah because they weren't fighting the battles they started to backslide in the flesh but what did Esau do Esau kept busy He kept busy because he understood that the devil was out there like a roaring lion. He understood the enemy that surrounded them. And so during that time of rest, he didn't remain inactive, but he shored things up. So we're not going through a trial, not going through a tribulation. And during that time, man, I honestly sought the Lord because I thought that this was going to be it. But God prevailed and he delivered me. And now, you know what? Things are going pretty good. Well, things are going pretty good. Grow in the knowledge of the Lord. Because that next trial is coming. It's coming down the track. And what does God do? He wants to mature you. He wants to see you grow in faith. And so he brings a trial in for that particular purpose. But he doesn't just bring the, next, the, second, uh, the same trial next time. He'll intensify it. And he'll intensify it. And he'll intensify it. And if you're looking at it and the reality of it, he's going to intensify it all the way to the day of my death. The day that I am on my deathbed, when I am facing the greatest trial that humanity ever faces, am I still going to hold strong in the Lord? Well, if you faced the previous trials in faith in God, then that trial isn't going to be as difficult as we all imagine for it to be. As I'm not going to get into the study, but God has ordained the day of our death. And this life is in the hands of the Lord. And if this life is in the hands of the Lord, this death is going to be in the Lord's hands as well. And it's that which strengthens us, and it's that which we see, wow, God has built faith even for this very day. And so, because of his heart to do so, uh, to honor God, God gave Judah peace from its enemies. And so, you want a God-ordained peace within your home or your area of influence? Do what Asa did, cleanse the land. Take a Bible in one hand and a trash bag in the other, And go through your home and discard anything that could come between you and God. Anything between you and a right relationship with Jesus Christ. It may cause an uprising, but do you want a false peace that sin allows or true peace that God brings? We're told about that in Philippians 4, 7. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, that's to have peace in the midst of a difficult situation, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. 
Secondly, Esau's repentance was seen in his venture of faith. Look at verses 9 through 15. So he's had this time of, of peace, but now all of a sudden an enemy is on the horizon. It says, Then Zerah the Ethiopian came out against them with an army of a million men. So he's got 500,000 almost. So again, he's outnumbered almost two to one. Came out against them with an army of a million men and 300 chariots. A chariot would be comparable to a tank today. And he came to Marisha. And so Esau went out against them, and they set troops in the uh, battle array in the valley of Zephathah at Marisha. And Esau cried out to the Lord his God and said, Lord, it is nothing for you to help, whether with many or with those who have no power. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on you. And in your name we go against this multitude, O Lord. You are our God. Do Do not let man prevail against you. So the Lord struck the Ethiopians before Esau and Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. And Esau and the people who were with him pursued them to Gerar. This is in southern Judah. So the Ethiopians were overthrown, and they could not recover, for they were broken before the Lord and his army. And they carried away very much spoil, and they defeated all the cities around Gerar, for the fear of the Lord came upon them, and they plundered all the cities, for there was an exceedingly much spoil in them. And they also attack, uh, attacked the livestock enclosures and carried off sheep and camels in abundance and returned to Jerusalem." This great victory that has been achieved, it's because they were seeking the Lord out. It's because they had this heart for God. And what we see in verse 11, I believe, is the key for the victory that they had. Again, he's faced with these insurmountable odds. But what does he do? The first thing he does, see, it's not necessary for him to be surrounded by the enemy for God to get his attention. He already has God's attention because he has given his attention to God. So now, Esau, when he's faced with an overwhelming issue, he just does what comes natural to him. He prays. It says again in verse 11, And Esau cried out to the Lord his God and said, Lord, it is nothing for you to help. So when he says cried out to the Lord his God, Lord, again, it's all in capital letters. It's the tetragrammaton Yahweh. The God who is, is his God. Why is it necessary to say that? Because the enemy... The false gods who are not are their gods, but the difference between them and Esau, his God is the God who truly is. And he said, Lord, it is nothing for you to help. He's understanding that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that he asks or think. The same God that created everything by the sound of his voice, the same God that delivered uh, Israel from Egypt by a mighty hand is the same God that is able to help him. He says, says, whether with many or with those who have no power, help us. He's understanding the power of God and the weakness of his people. O Lord, our God, for we rest on you, and in your name we go against this multitude, O Lord. You are our God. Do not, do not let man prevail against him. So this is a prayer of faith, because again, he's overwhelmed. Two to one odds. He's not looking very good. Probably knew what his, his uh, God had done for his father. And so he's a man who is not just speaking empty words of that secular sermon that we saw before, but here's a man that right away, he goes to prayer. How do you do? How do you do when all of a sudden you're faced with an overwhelming situation? Well, the level of your maturity will dictate how quickly it is that you go to prayer, and I'm talking about a prayer of faith. 
Sometimes we'll start off in the flesh. Sometimes we'll react in a poor manner. But God will bring us to the place of prayer. And I would say, present to you, the more mature you are in the Lord, the more experience that you have in your relationship with Jesus Christ, the quicker it is that you'll go to prayer. Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Thirdly, Esau's repentance was seen in his diligence. So again, he's continuing to cleanse the land. Chapter 15, verses 1 through 9. Now the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Obed. And when he went to meet Esau and said to him, so this is a prophet, Hear me, Esau, and all of Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. Excuse me. If you seek him... He will be found by you, but if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For a long time, Israel has been without the true God, without a teaching priest, and without law. But when in their trouble they had turned to the Lord God of Israel and sought him, he was found by them. And in those times there was no peace to the one who went out, nor to the one who came in. But great turmoil was on all the inhabitants of the lands. So nation was destroyed by nation and city by city, for God troubled them with great adversity. But you, so you don't be like them, who again, who had no relationship with God, but you be strong and do not let your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. And so... Esau heard these words, his response. And when Esau heard these words, verse 8, and the prophecy of Obed, the prophet, he took courage and removed the abominable idols from the land of Judah and Benjamin and from the cities which he had taken in the mountains of Ephraim, and he restored the altar of the Lord that was before the vestibule of the Lord. Then he gathered all Judah and Benjamin and those who dwelt with them from Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon, for they came over to him in great numbers from Israel when they saw that the Lord God was with them. Holiness attracts holiness. When people see people walking with the Lord, it attracts others who will walk with the Lord. And again, there's strength in those numbers, especially, you know, as we encourage people, come to church, come to study. Why? Because it's not just me up here teaching, it's us coming together and fellowshipping as well. There's strength in numbers. As each person here is filled with the Spirit, we see the Spirit move when we gather together. There's a little bit of a potential conflict. If you look at verse 14.3, it says that he had cleansed the high places, but then in chapter 15, verse 14, we see that the high places still existed, and he still once again had to cleanse the high places. Look at verse 16, it says, And he removed Maacha, his mother, uh, or the mother of Esau the king, and from being queen mother, because she had made an obscene image of Asherah. And Esau cut down her obscene image and then crushed and burned it by the brook Kidron. But the high places were not removed from Israel, the northern kingdom. Nevertheless, the heart of Esau was loyal in all of his days. He also brought into the house of God the things which his father had dedicated and that he himself had dedicated silver and gold. And there was no war until the 35th year of the reigns of Esau. So he, in, in chapter 14, the high places that he had eradicated were the places of worshiping false gods. But there was still an issue to be dealt with. There were still high places. Now, the high places that were in the southern kingdom, there were those of idolatry. Again, he eradicated those. But these were the high places that people were worshiping the God of the Bible. They were worshiping Yahweh on these high places. What's the problem with that? That's not how God has commanded him to be worshipped. 
And we must be mindful of that. We're told today that those who worship will worship in spirit and in truth. And what that tells me is, is that our worship is not to be entertained-based, not to be songs just speaking of good works and things like that, but we need to evaluate our worship songs, that our worship songs would truly be songs that are dedicated to acknowledging the holiness and the righteousness of God. And that the things that I do, again, my giving is to be an act of worship, that I don't just write out a check or however it is you give stuff, money in a box or whatever, but truly it's an expression of my heart, that I would pray about it, that I would consider it, and that I would worship God accordingly. Again, to do something without your heart is heartless worship, and it's something that God does not honor. And so whether it's the song of my lips, it's the giving of my wealth, or it's just the reading of the Bible, or whatever it might be, I must consider who it is that these things are to focus upon and truly make sure that I'm giving the worship of my heart. Now, again, when Israel was coming into the land, God told them, don't worship me like the world worships. This is in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. It says, these are the statutes and judgments which you shall be careful to observe in the land which the Lord God of your fathers has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall destroy dispossess, serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. And you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and burn their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down the carved images of their gods and destroy their names from that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God with such things, but you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses, we know this to be Jerusalem, out of all of your tribes to put his name for his dwelling place, and there you shall go. And so Esau, remember the king, had to write out the words of the law, so he would have written those very words. Esau knew, and Esau acted upon those things. Well, he's got a bit of a problem, too, in the verses that I had just previously read in verses 16 through 18. He's got his mother, and his mother has a false god, has this obscene image I won't go into what the image is, but it's basically pornography. And she's kept this, and I don't know how she worshipped, and I, I don't know any of the details, but the fact of the matter, it was there, and they were worshipping, or at least she was worshipping this. He even came up against his own mother. He cut it down, and he had this burnt as well, because he understood that this thing would infect from the inside out. That's why we see God telling him to go into the land and destroy these places because people will so easily bring them into worship. And I pray that this church never goes there. If you ever leave this church, you move or whatever, and you start going to evaluate your church based upon not how the, the pastor teaches or the worship ministry sounds, but are they truly giving glory to God? Are, are, are there, is there reason and purposes for what they do to see people grow in Jesus Christ? Or is it to entertain the sheep? Really, entertain goats, because you don't develop sheep by some of the ways and manners in which some churches work. And so we've got to consider these things. Because there can be that which seems holy, righteous, and true, but in fact is a perversion of that which is pure by the enemy. And he'll draw people away. Worship, worship is reverence rendered to God, which is pure 
and is right in the sight of God. It is idolatry or sinful to render any other created being or any other created thing such worship. Worship can be performed through singing, praying, giving, submitting, fellowshipping, and receiving God's word. It has been described, I don't remember where I first heard this, but it's never left me, it has been described as kissing the face of God. Praise, praise is connected with making a noise, which was originally associated with bodily actions and gestures, which accompany praising, uh, which accompany worshiping, and associated with the playing and singing of music. And so, worship can be, praise is a form of worship, but worship encompasses all. Praise is just simply that desire to reach closer to God, and we'll do so by singing louder, lifting our hands up, and all of that is okay. In Psalm 100, verses 1 through 5, it says, A psalm of thanksgiving, make a joyful shout to the Lord, all of you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God, and he who has made us and not we ourselves. For we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name, for the Lord is good. His mercy everlasting and his truth endures to all generations. If worship is kissing the face of God, then praise is continually kissing the face of God. But this must be God's way. And the only way to know God's way is through God's word. And so Esau where did he receive the word of God? Well, when he had to write the law, but also he had an ear to hear what the Spirit had to say through this prophet. And he's obedient to what he's doing. And then you would think chapter 16 would say, and he lived happily ever after. But that's not what happened. Again, Esau is a man, so he's an imperfect man. Remember, apple doesn't fall very far from the tree. In chapter 16, verses 1 through 2, in the 36th year of the reign of Esau, Baasha, king of Israel, came up against Judah and built Ramah, that he might let none go out or come into Esau, king of Judah. So it was on the border. He built this stronghold, probably preventing trade and whatnot. It says, then Esau didn't seek the Lord, didn't go out to fight him as he did the million-man army of the Ethiopians. But it says, Esau bought silver and gold from the treasuries of the house of the Lord of the king's house and sent to Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, who dwelt in Damascus, saying, Let there be a treaty between you and me. Instead of seeking the Lord out, what is he doing? He's seeking the world out. And he's making a fatal mistake, a fatal error here. Northern Kingdom has a new king, but the hostilities still continue between north and south. Instead of depending upon God, he goes to the world for help. Seem, things seem to work out well, but his perceived victory is going to become a frustrating defeat. Look at verse 7. And at that time, Hanani, the seer, prophet, came to Esau, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you have relied on the king of Syria... And have not relied on the Lord your God, therefore the army of the king of Syria has escaped from your hand. That means he's going to be a thorn in your side in the future. Were the Ethiopians and the Lubim not a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those who heart, whose heart is loyal to him. And this you have done foolishly. Therefore, from now on, you shall have wars. Your days of peace, he's telling him, is over. 
Then Esau was angry with the seer and put him in prison, for he was enraged at him because of this. And Esau oppressed some of the people at that time. So do you see the heart of Esau now? He's not, what is he not doing here? He's not repenting. He could have repented. And I bet you if he repented, God would have relented. But what does he do? He does the same thing that the world does when we take the message out of here. He, he, he goes up against the messenger. Why? Because he can't go against God. So he's wanting to blame everybody else, but he's not willing to take the blame himself. This is an utter failure of him. goes a little bit deeper, verse 11. Note that the acts of Esau, first and last, are indeed written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. And in the 39th year of his reign, Esau became diseased in his feet. So God, what did God do? God put him on his back. And his malady was severe, yet in his disease he did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. So Esau rested with his fathers. He died in the 41st year of his reign. They buried him in his own tomb, which he had made for himself in the city of David. And they laid him in the bed, which was filled with spices and various ingredients prepared in a mixture of ointments. And they made a very great burning for him. Esau ignored the Lord on that day when the enemy was threatening him. But instead of coming before God, he went to the world. What happened? What changed? We can so easily fall into just kind of, well, just taking our faith for granted, taking our relationship with God for granted. The times that I've taken my wife for granted or she taken me for granted, not good. That's not good in a relationship. We've got to constantly be renewing these relationships time after time. It's the idea why we're having Valentine's Banquet next Saturday is to remind ourselves of these things. But how much more so in our relationship with God? See, Esau at some point took his eyes off of God and, well, I got this issue with the northern kingdom. I'll just go to Syria. I have to take some of the things out of the temple that we use in the worship of God, this gold, and give it to them. But at least I don't have to go to battle and, and I'll be delivered. And, hey, it seemed to work. But now this prophet comes up and reminds him, and really what the prophet's doing is reminding him of his sinful nature. He doesn't like it, and so he casts him aside. And what did I say? What God is doing these things, and he's building our faith, because there's going to come the greatest of trials, and the greatest of trials is death. And on the day of his death, he still wasn't trusting in God. See, he did well, and he's referred to as a good king, but he just didn't finish well. And just as I was telling, I believe, my wife last week, I want to finish well. I want to finish well because that speaks of the reality of my belief in the things that we talk about in the scriptures. I don't want to finish such as Esau did and have my grandchildren think, well, when it came really right down to it, did my papa really believe? I don't want to leave any doubt. Because see, if we weren't told that Esau is a good king, coming up here in chapter 16, you may not think that he was. He just didn't finish well. Far be it from God that we would not finish well. So as far as the apples and the trees, Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 23 says, but this is what I commanded them saying, obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people and walk in all the ways that I have commanded you that it may be well with you. Ezekiel 18 verses 1 and 2, the word of the Lord came to me again saying, what do you mean when you say this proverb, when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel saying, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and their children's teeth are set on edge. The idea being that my mouth is puckered because my father ate sour grapes. The idea is my current condition is my father's fault. It's not your father's fault. 
We all inherited the sinful nature of our father, but the question is, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to come before the throne of grace, or are you going to try and work it out yourself? Working out yourself? I tried that for a good period of my life. It doesn't work. But when I came to Christ, it's Christ who set us free. Ezekiel 18, 3-4, As I live, says the Lord God, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. Everybody is responsible for themselves. The apple does not fall far from the tree, but this is the reason that Jesus died on the tree, so that we, in turn, would be set free. Father, once again, we just thank you, God, for your goodness, Lord. We can't hide who we are from you, just as Adam thought he could. But, Lord, you saw through the fig leaves and the bushes. You see through these things as well, Lord, and you see the reality of who we are. But nonetheless, you still died for us, and you still brought us into your family. And for that, God, we worship you. I pray even for this last worship song, Father, that it would be intimate, that, Lord, we be an expression of our hearts towards you. And so, Lord, I pray for those who have come out tonight that you would go before them. I pray that you would bless them. Pray that you would protect us, Lord. And as we enter in the trials and tribulations, Father, I pray that you would grow us in the midst of them, that we would receive all that you have, that we would depend upon you for all things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please? Tonight, as Sal pointed out, is the absolute last time to sign up for the uh, couple's banquet. That's next Saturday. I encourage you to do so. Uh, We actually got a pretty good response in people helping to serve for it, too. But we could always use more help. If you can't come and attend and you're able to come next Saturday evening and help serve, that would be a blessing as well. Other than that, guys, have a great week. God bless you.
Mountains bow down and every ocean roars to the Lord of hosts. Praise Adonai from the rising of the sun to the end of every day. Oh, praise Adonai. All the nations of the earth, all the angels and the saints sing praise Adonai. From the rising of the sun to the end of every day, oh praise Adonai. All the nations of the earth, all the angels and the saints sing praise. Amen. Praise Him. Have a great night.